On May 22nd, 2016, so not quite a year ago, 60 Minutes ran an episode entitled $80 Million Con. I don't know how many of you watch 60 Minutes, but I wanted to read part of this script to you. It reads as follows, when one of the oldest and most respected art galleries in America, I may not pronounce this right, but it's the Nodler Gallery in New York, K-N-O-E-D-L-E-R, When they closed their doors abruptly in 2011, the art world was stunned. Not because the gallery closed, but by the discovery that over the course of 15 years, the gallery and its president, Ann Friedman, had sold millions of dollars in forgeries to wealthy collectors. This caught my eye. Nearly 40 paintings, supposedly created by some of the most important artists of the 20th century, were all fakes. Painted by a struggling artist in his garage in Queens. The fraud might still be going on if it weren't for an art historian, Jack Flam, who was one of the first people to uncover the scheme and blow the whistle to the government, he called the FBI, putting the brakes on an $80 million con, the most audacious and lucrative art fraud in US history. Jack suggested the paintings be sent for scientific testing to a guy named Jamie Martin, one of the world's top forensic art analysts. Martin examined one of the fake Robert Motherwells using a stereo microscope to study every millimeter of the painting's surface and to select and then remove samples for identification. That's how he detected circular marks in the base layers indicating an electric sander had been used to remove paint. Forgers tend to use orbital sanders to remove paint from old paintings so that when that painting is handled, the back and edges look suitably old. I don't even think I would have thought of that. The smoking gun in this particular case was the red paint that is present on the edge of the work. The red paint contains a pigment called Pigment Red 170. It turns out Pigment Red 170 wasn't available until more than 10 years after the paintings were supposedly created. $80 million. I'm not a guy who's going around spending crazy money on works of art. But I know from reading that the art world spends vast sums of money to figure out if a particular piece is genuine. And, and I get that, even though I'm not an art collector, I get that, people want to get their, their money's worth. You don't wanna shell out millions for a Picasso and then find out in a couple weeks that it was painted last year by some guy in China. <laughs> you just don't wanna do that, you wanna get your money's worth. So what other people say a painting is and and what you initially think it is are helpful, but what you really care about, what's most important, is what it actually is. Okay, so you can think of it this way. Authenticity is critical. It's critical. That's true when it comes to a classic work of art. Authenticity is critical. Friend, Authenticity is immeasurably more important when it comes to the condition of your soul. 
It's important in the art world, but it's immeasurably more important when it comes to the condition of your soul. Why do I say that? Because of what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Church, I think those are some of the most sobering words in the entire Bible. I never knew you. And as I prayed about our next sermon series, the Lord kept bringing me back to to two burdens, uh, both of which have to do with the, the authenticity of our faith. Okay, so here's the first one. I'm convinced for Matthew 7 and, and other scriptures like it that it's all too easy to think you're a Christian when in fact you're not. Okay? To think you have a saving relationship with Jesus when, when in reality you don't. And, and I would argue that false assurance of salvation is especially easy in a southern culture like Richmond, where many people grew up going to church, many people have a a generic belief in the existence of God, or will even admit to praying when, when life gets hard. Here's the problem with that. None of those things make you a Christian. None of those things do. None of those things provide assurance of life after death. That kind of assurance is only possible through faith in Christ. And I, and I don't want any of you who are listening to me right now to meet God face to face on that final day and hear him pronounce those words over you, I never knew you. As a pastor, that, that's the worst fear, top of the charts. I, I want us, I want you, no matter how many times you've been in this building, to know the joy of assurance of salvation. That's the first burden, okay? Here's the second burden. As I was praying about where to go next in our sermon series, I'm I'm convinced from church history that even genuine Christians are prone to swing between two equally dangerous errors, okay? Here's the one. The first is legalism. What's legalism? When in a nutshell, that's seeking to earn love or acceptance from God through obedience to God. Okay, that's legalism, all right? The other error is license. What's that? Well, that's believing that, that it doesn't really matter if I obey the word of God in every area of life. As long as I, I believe he exists, I'm a halfway decent person, I'm good. I would argue that in the past, as a church, I think we were uniquely susceptible to legalism, okay? My concern today is that we're susceptible to joining the majority culture around us in falling into license. You know, we we buy into this, this unbiblical definition of grace. 
which is really an unbiblical understanding of the love of God at its root that leaves us reluctant to challenge each other to obey God's commands even when it's hard, okay? So those are the two burdens and and both that, that desire for us to experience a genuine assurance of salvation, all of us, and a desire to understand why is personal holiness so important? Both those desires in my heart came together and delivered me at the doorstep of 1 John, okay? 1 John is all about authentic faith. It's all about authentic faith. And in fact, the author comes right out and and says as much in chapter five, verse 13. I write these things to you. This is like putting your topic sentence at the end of a paper. Okay, this is the the thing that that English professors will dock you for, but, but we're not gonna go there. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, the point of this entire letter, many ways, is to help all of us grow in our assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation is the divinely intended effect of the entire letter. And one of the tests of whether or not our faith is authentic that John just keeps coming back to over and over again in this letter is our personal holiness. He he, he holds those two things together, okay? Over and over again, John tells us authenticity matters. Matters in the art world, matters immeasurably more so when it comes to our relationship with God. So I hope you've opened your Bible to 1 John. I'm gonna read from the first four verses, but before I do, I wanna very quickly recommend two books to you, okay? I'm gonna do this throughout the series more than I've done in the past. But, but given this whole book, as I said a, a minute ago, uh, 1 John 5.13 is in many ways all about assurance of salvation, knowing, is my faith authentic? Uh, there are two books that are really helpful in this regard, okay? So the first one is by J.D. Greer. Do we have slides of these? There we go. Stop asking Jesus into your heart. Ooh. Yeah, a little provocative, right? So this is a very simple, quick read that takes on a Christian culture where we give each other false assurance simply because of a prayer we prayed decades ago. That's not assurance of salvation, okay? The presence of a prayer by itself, that's not assurance of salvation. So J.D. Greer's book is really good. That's in the bookshop. And then the second one, I'm pretty sure I have an older edition here. Uh, This is by Donald Whitney. Some of you have probably read this. How can I be sure I'm a Christian? Okay, this one is, oh good, it's the old copy, I'm not out of date. This one is a little bit longer, a little bit more in depth, but both of these are in the bookshop, you can grab these at any point, and they help us wrestle with this understanding of how do I know if my faith is genuine? Okay, so be sure to check those out. More recommendations to come. All right, 1 John 1, I'll begin reading in verse one, but let me just real quickly give you a bit of background. Okay, so, so the author of this book never reveals his name. You may notice that if you're already looking at the very beginning of it here, but beginning with the early church fathers, scholars have traditionally understood that the author of the fourth gospel, Gospel of John, the Apostle John, is the same man who wrote the epistles of John, so first, second, third John. And it appears that he wrote this to a group of Christians in Asia Minor near the end of the first century A.D., 
to either individual Christians or church, group of churches, who were being deceived by false teachers. So these men were leading the church away from faithfulness to God and to the gospel in her life and doctrine. They they were being deceived. And, And in many ways, this whole book you won't see this so much this morning, but certainly over the next few months, it, it reads like a spiral. It's a little bit harder to preach, but, but it reads like a spiral in that John just keeps circling back to the same themes over and over and over again, adding a little bit more every time. So, so themes like authentic faith believes the truth. Authentic faith obeys the truth. Or authentic faith loves God's people. It's also a deeply personal letter. You know, when John writes this, he's an old guy. You know, end of the first century, he's an old guy. And, and he's invested decades of his life in discipling the folks that he's writing to. And so he refers to them, get this, some really endearing ways, children, little children, or beloved. So as we come to this book and and let the Lord use it to help us wrestle with the authenticity of our faith, I want you to know up front, and you'll see this as we go, that that John is helping us do this as a pastor. He's gentle, he's loving, he's, he's tender, but yet what he says could not be more important, okay? So let's look at 1 John 1, beginning in verse one. As I read this, I'm going to encourage you to do this every Sunday in this Assured of Salvation series. I want you to be asking two questions. Okay, what does authentic faith look like? And what does my life look like? Okay, what does authentic faith look like? And what does my life look like? All right, so think about those. Let's, let's read first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. God bless the preaching of his word. I I love how John wastes no time at the beginning. There's no, hello, how's the weather? I'm John, how are you? There's none of that. He, he, he starts off by establishing, that no greetings, no intros. He just immediately starts by establishing the authority and the authenticity of his message. He gets right to the point, right to the point. No build up, no lead up, right to the point. Well, what's the point? When a sentence, I'd, I'd say it's this. The revelation of Christ is a word of eternal life for all who choose to receive him. I think that's the point of these verses. The revelation of Christ is a word of eternal life to all who choose to receive him. And, and John supports that claim by making several points, okay? Number one, the word of Christ is historically reliable. Historically reliable, okay? Look, look at verse one. What does he say? That which was 
from what? The beginning. That's right, from the beginning. Who, who in the world is he talking about? That which was, or what is he talking about? That which is from the beginning. Well, well, to those reading this letter who knew the Old Testament, it wasn't a mystery who John was talking about, okay? Because they knew scriptures like Psalm 92. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What's that mean? Well, it means that before you existed, before creation existed, before time itself existed, God was there. He, he has no beginning and he has no end. Okay, that's, that's what we mean when we say God is eternal. He's eternal. He's from the beginning because he, he has no beginning. And, and the gospel of John in verse one gets even more specific. Remember, they're written by the same guy. What's he say there? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, now think about that. If you haven't heard that before, that can just seem really odd. How can what John refers to as the word be God and with God at the same time? How's that possible? Well, it's because the word isn't a reference to God in general. It's a reference to the son of God in particular. Okay, the, the second person of the Trinity, eternally begotten of the Father. And, and John's doing the same thing here in 1 John 1, 1. Okay, same sort of thing. When he speaks of, of that which was from the beginning, he's not speaking of God in general, though that was true, but he's speaking of Jesus in particular. All right, preacher man, how do you know that? <laughs> You should always be asking yourself that. How does he know that? Well, because that which was from the beginning is also that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. You know, John had an amazing experience as one of the 12 apostles. You know what that was? He got to see Jesus. He got to see Jesus. He, he touched him with his hands. He, he listened to him with his ears. Translation, three of his five senses confirmed the reality of the incarnation. That the stunning news that, that God and the son of God himself had come to earth and took to his divine person a human nature, the womb of Mary, and walked among us for 33 years. That's what he's referring to. He who was, look at verse two, with the father was made manifest to us. That the one who inhabited eternity chose to reveal himself in history. Think about that. Jesus, the one who inhabited eternity, was born. He lived, he He died and he rose from the grave in our physical world as a real human being. Jesus isn't a mirage. He's not an illusion. He's just as much a real person as you and I are real people. In fact, that's what made it so hard for a lot of folks to believe that he could be God. 
right? Because he looks like a real person. He is a real person. How can that be God? No, no, one, no one anticipated that the creator of the universe who set the stars in place would come to earth. You, you don't expect that. It's hard to believe. So, so why does John begin his letter by reminding us of the reality of the incarnation? Why, why does he start here? Well, I think it's because he's, he's reminding his, his hearers and he's reminding all of us, friends, that the word of Christ, the word of the gospel, it's historically reliable. And that's really, really important. Why, why is it important that the word of Christ, the word of the gospel, is historically reliable? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because the Bible never separates the Jesus of history from the Christ of faith. Never. Never. It never says, well, there's a Jesus in history over here, but we don't really know if that's a decent take on the Christ of faith that we believe in. Never separates them. One and the same. Always the same. And that fact reminds us, church, that biblical faith is not a subjective human opinion or a religious feeling. Rather, an abiding, humble confidence in the historical revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. I love how John Stott says it. The Christian message is neither a philosophical speculation, hear that, nor a tentative suggestion, nor a modest contribution to religious thought, but a confident affirmation by those whose experience and commission have qualified them to make it. That's true. That's true. But before John explains his message, he takes great pains to establish his authority as a messenger and to remind his listeners, guys, listen, I'm speaking as an eyewitness here. I'm an eyewitness of the Christ I proclaim. In other words, when he's writing of the person work of Jesus, he's not just sharing, well, I believe this. Oh, you believe that? Oh, well, I believe this. Nonsense. He's not. He's testifying to what could be verified by hundreds of eyewitnesses. And I want you to think about this. We need to slow down and think about this. You and I believe all kinds of things are true. I know this about you. I may have never met you. But I know this about you. You and I believe all kinds of things are true that we have never seen with our physical eyes. Why? Because we believe eyewitnesses. I mean, think about it. I, I like to listen to the news on the way home from work. And when I do, I hear descriptions of facts and stories. And, and I, for the most part, I believe what I'm hearing is true. Why do I do that? Because I physically see everything they're talking about? Well, no, because I know that I am listening to eyewitnesses, and, and not just one, but, but multiple eyewitnesses, okay? Do you realize that's precisely what the Bible is? It's eyewitness testimony, okay? The incarnation of the Son of God isn't a Christian idea. It's historical reality. We need to feel the weight of that, okay? If, if you're not a Christian, 
Or maybe you, you once thought of yourself as a Christian, but you're not so much anymore, and, and you're wrestling with the claims of Christ. You need to know, friend, that you are wrestling with a historical reality. Don't let our postmodern culture relegate your faith, young person, college student, to the realm of ideas. It's historical reality. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, note this, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Implication, talk to them. Don't take my word for it. You don't write that if it's a con. You say, trust in me, trust in me, right? Jungle book? You don't don't say, go check out the eyewitnesses. But that's precisely what the authors of scripture do over and over again. Why? Because the word of Christ is historically reliable. Okay? How, How do we know the revelation of Christ is a word of eternal life? for all who choose to receive him. Reason number one, the word of Christ is historically reliable. Reason number two, the word of Christ creates fellowship with God and man. Okay, look at verse three. Look at verse three. What does John write? That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. What if John had simply said that which we have heard? we proclaim to you. Well, if that was the case, you might think that this this word of life that God made manifest is is just a spiritual message of some kind. But he doesn't write that, right? He He writes, what does he say? That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Why does he say that? Well, it's because the word of life that he's talking about, it is a message, but it's also more than a message. It's a person the person of Jesus Christ, okay? So so John's reminding us here again that the gospel, it's not a religious idea or a principle. It's not a body of abstract truth. What is the gospel? It's the revelation of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what it is, okay? And think of it this way. The person is the message and the message is a person. And what happens when we proclaim that message? What what does John anticipate will happen as he proclaims that word of life to us, to his hearers? Verse three, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, then notice the anticipated result. Why is he doing this? So that you too may have fellowship with us. Notice that word. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship. That's a word that if you're not a Christian, is really strange, and if you are a Christian, there's a decent chance you use it all the time and you have no clue what it means. You know, it's, it's sort of on the catch list of prayer and fellowship. Whoever knows, I mean, coffee? You know, it's just, we use the word, but we don't know what it means, okay? But at a basic level, fellowship simply means to share something in common with someone, okay? or to have something in common with them. Fellowship, by definition, it's, it's intensely relational. And, and John mentions two kinds of fellowship here, okay? The first fellowship, kind of fellowship is, is with us, 
with other Christians. And the second kind of fellowship is with the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. So catch this. John anticipates as a result of proclaiming the word of Christ, preaching the gospel, that two inseparable things are going to happen. First, a new vertical communion with no one less than God himself. That's audacious. And second, a new horizontal communion with all of God's people. And they're inseparable, okay? So, so let's think about both those for a minute because I think it's easy to miss how radical this is. All right, first, please hear this. Unless you believe the word of life, unless you believe that Jesus, the son of God, lived and died and rose from the grave to save you from sin and death, you are not a Christian. You do not have communion with God. You don't have fellowship with him. Why, why not? Because you cannot experience the gift of fellowship with God and communion with God apart from faith in Christ. It's not possible. There, there's not multiple paths to God. There's one way to God. Wait, when you're in a conversation with, with someone Christian who's not a believer, maybe they're a they practice another faith and, and there's sort of a move to the amorphous common middle ground in the form of, well, you know, we all believe something. We're, we're all spiritual. You know, you have a way to God. I have a way to God. With all due respect, no, you don't. You don't. I love you. You're wrong. There's only one way to God. John 14, 6. What's Jesus say? I mean, this isn't up for negotiation, okay? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you're a Muslim and you, you enjoy religious experiences of some kind, I, I can't deny that. But just know that you don't have the gift of fellowship with God. Okay, if you're a, an Orthodox Jew... You, you don't have the gift of fellowship with God. You may have a religious experience of some kind, but you don't, you don't have the gift of fellowship with God. P- people who believe God exists, who attend church, who, who say God bless you, or practice mindfulness, or some other form of spiritual meditation, they don't know the gift of fellowship with God. And, and you may, friend, feel like you have it. But again, in love, God says you're deceived. Why? Because you can only enjoy fellowship or relationship with God if you treasure Christ. If you believe that the perfect son of God lived for you and died for you and rose from the grave for you so you could be forgiven of your many sins, declared righteous in the sight of God, adopted as his beloved children and a son or daughter of the king and know eternal life for all eternity. Okay? That is what it means to be a Christian. There's no fellowship with God apart from faith in Christ. That's the first thing that happens, okay? When the word of Christ is proclaimed and believed, fellowship with the Father, with his son, Jesus Christ. That's the vertical fellowship. But let's not disconnect that from the horizontal result. Okay, so look back at verse three, chapter one, verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with God. Nope, wrong, what's he say? So that you too may have fellowship with us 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. Okay, what's going on here? Well, there's an intimacy of relationship with God's people that you'll never know unless you're looking to Christ to save you from the wrath of God and give you eternal life. That's what's going on. And you can't claim to have fellowship with God if you're not living, friend, in fellowship with his people. They go together. Okay, now, now you can try to separate them. Right, so what am I saying? Fellowship with God, fellowship with his people, it's a package deal. It goes together. You, but you can try to separate them. You know, you, you can talk about how, and I hear this all the time, you read this online all the time. You know, I'm tight with God. All right, I, Jesus and me, he, he's a BFF, we, we are so good. I just can't stand the church. Can't stand it. You know, so what I really fall back on is I'm good with God despite the fact that I'm not living in close relationship with other Christians as a member of a local church. Okay, I, I warn you, friend, that if you persist in doing that, if you persist in that, there's a good chance you're not a Christian at all. Doesn't mean inherently you're not, but you ought to really question the authenticity of your faith. Why? Because there's no category in scripture for Christians who have fellowship with God and no fellowship with his people. You can look in every page for that. You will never find it. You cannot have the one without the other. And the other points to the one. So what's John saying? Genuine fellowship with God is only possible through faith in Christ. And we ought to question the authenticity of our faith in Christ if we're not living in fellowship with his people. Okay? So how do we know that the revelation of Christ is a word of eternal life for all who choose to receive him? First, because the word of Christ is historically reliable. And second, because the word of Christ creates fellowship with God and man. Okay, here's the last reason. Reason why the revelation of Christ, how do we know this? That the revelation of Christ is a word of eternal life for all who choose to receive him. Here's the last reason. The word of Christ brings fullness of joy. Fullness of joy, all right? Of all the realities that 1 John confronts us with, this is ah, perhaps the most important and also the most overlooked. All right? Here's the point. You won't ever find, ultimately, life in yourself. You won't, friend. You won't. And by the way, not to be funny, you can't create it by eating lots of kale and drinking coconut milk. <laughs> Whatever other popular thing out there that you can do is. Okay? You, you can't create life for yourself. Your physical life is a gift from God. That's true physically, okay? The Lord knit you together in your mother's womb. But that's also true spiritually, 
okay? It's true spiritually. When you believe the word of life, the word of Christ, the gospel, God does an amazing work in your heart. What, what does he do? Well, he transforms us from someone who's spiritually dead into a new person who's spiritually alive. That's what God does. And in one sense, we'll never know the fullness of, of the life that is ours in Christ until we get to heaven, right? Why, why do I say that? Because for now we live in a fallen world where we're groaning inwardly as we're waiting eagerly. But on this side of eternity, friend, you can know that the spiritual life God offers you through Christ is characterized by something that no suffering or death can ever take away from you. You know what it's characterized by? That life in Christ? Fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. Look at verse four. And we're writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Now, now there's a little bit of debate here as to whether or not John is referring to, speaking of, of our joy or your joy. So different Bible translations take that, make that call differently. But ultimately, I think that's a moot point. Because in the context of verse three, this mutual fellowship, what John Stott calls common participation in the grace of God, the salvation of Christ, and the indwelling spirit. I think that our joy is, is kind of a way of saying all y'all's joy. Okay, it's, it's a big hour. All of our joy is in view. Now, now why does he say that? How, how could writing about the fellowship that we have with God through the word of Christ, the word of the gospel, complete our joy? I think Psalm 1611 is really helpful here. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. That's a great verse to memorize, by the way. Fellowship with God and one another is the immediate result of believing the word of Christ, the word of the gospel. But you know what the ultimate result is? It's joy. Why, why joy, Matthew? Because Jesus isn't just true. He's satisfying. Do you believe that? Jesus isn't just true. What John is authoritatively proclaiming as an eyewitness isn't just a data point or fact like the hundred other facts I heard on NPR on the way home from work yesterday. It's not just a data point. Get the right data point, check your I believe Jesus box, you get an A, no. Okay, good grades are satisfying for a bit and then they're just, you gotta take the next test. Jesus is eternally satisfying. Eternally satisfying. And, And when that relationship, that fellowship with him is present through faith in Christ, friend, you will know fullness of joy. No matter how hard your life is, no matter what what difficulty awaits you this week, no matter how how old you are, how young you are, how rich or poor, how how healthy or sick, if you're willing to receive the word of life that God holds out to you in Jesus, you can experience not just a little joy or a little more joy or some joy, but perfect, complete joy. That no person and no pleasure and no possession in this world holds a candle to.
But that will never happen until the relationship that, that Christ himself has with the Father, of dependence, of trust, of faith, becomes the relationship that you have with the Father. That joy doesn't just fall out of the sky. It's a gift of God through faith in Christ, which is why, please hear this as I conclude, the claim of God's word to us this morning it is not just some sort of be sure you're a Christian once you've checked the box, pull out your smartphone, tune out for the rest of the First John series. Don't do that because that's not what this is. This is an invitation, a challenge to, to abide in Christ, to, to rest in Christ, to, to trust Christ more fully today than you did yesterday. Why? So that your joy would increase. Because friends, Jesus didn't come to give us just a little bit of life or a little more life. He came to give you abundant life. The life that can only be found in fellowship with him. So, so stop trying to find it elsewhere. It won't work. It won't work. You, you were made to know him and he delights to know you. So choose to receive the word of life, the word of the gospel, that your joy would be complete. Okay? What's the point of the, the very beginning of 1 John? Very simple. The revelation of Christ is a word of eternal life for all who choose to receive him. Three reasons that's true. It's historically reliable. It creates fellowship with God and man, and it brings fullness of joy. That's what authentic faith looks like, okay? Fullness of joy and fellowship with God and his people through faith in the gospel. You want a definition of authentic faith? That's what it is. Fullness of joy through fellowship with God and his people through faith in the gospel. So I ask you this question. Is that what your life looks like? Would you say right now, not sometime in the past, right now, that your life is characterized by fullness of joy through fellowship with God and his people through faith in the gospel? Friend, if you're uncertain or you don't know or I've said things and you're starting to think, am I even a Christian? Please, please, don't rush through that question. Okay? The worst thing you can do in response to this word is check a mental box and go get coffee. The Lord wants us to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Because the call is not just to take care of the you and God thing sometime in the past. The call is to abide in Christ forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this word. Lord, I, I especially pray that for everyone here who, whether they realize it or not, right now, the word of Christ, the word of the gospel, it, it feels like a religious idea. Just some data point out in space that's supposed to be important to them and is obviously a big deal to the preacher. <laughs> but it's not in their heart. You're just out there somewhere. You don't feel real. Lord, you know who those people are. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would open blind eyes to see the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray as we study this book of 1 John that, that you would help us to exalt in Christ, to make no assumptions, to, to stand in awe again of things we've heard before. God, thank you for your mercy in revealing yourself to us as a man. I pray, Father, that you would deepen our experience of fellowship with you, fellowship with one another. And Lord, I ask that wherever we have drifted and are a cultural or or nominal Christian, that you would lovingly and mercifully expose that false assurance as only you can and grant the gift of genuine saving faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.